The Animation Podcast, August 4th, 2008. The Animation Podcast is sponsored by AnimationMentor.com, the online animation school. Sign up for their free monthly newsletter for animation tips, student profiles, and access to my upcoming Animation Mentor exclusive animation podcast at AnimationMentor.com. To infinity, to infinity, to infinity, to infinity. What's this? Hey everybody, this is Clay Cadis. Welcome to episode 29 of the Animation Podcast. In case you haven't figured it out by now, the Animation Podcast is all about animation and the people who make it. This month brings a new guest to the podcast, Eric Goldberg. Eric will always be known for his animation of the genie in Aladdin, but that's only part of his resume. He co-directed Pocahontas and two sequences of Fantasia 2000, the Rhapsody in Blue sequence and the Carnival of the Animals sequence. That's the one with the flamingo and the yo-yo. Eric also animated the trainer Phil in Hercules, and he's currently animating on the upcoming film, The Princess and the Frog. Now, I know all of my guests love animation, but Eric loves animation. You can see it in his work, and you can hear it in his voice. I personally respect his work so much, and that's probably why out of all my guests, it took me the longest to get the courage to ask Eric to be on this show. Obviously, I'm honored to bring you part one of my interview with Eric Goldberg. Well, I uh, I think we should start with kind of the news, and uh, I think the audience of the show is really going to be excited about this too. Um, it's your book that's finally coming out, and uh, for years I've been hearing that you've been working on a book, and you've had notes for a book, and I've seen bad, bad, bad photocopies of some notes, and I hope this is those notes put into a beautiful format. You just set it up for me beautifully. Um, yes, the book officially is coming out in July. It's called... Uh, Character Animation Crash Course, being published by Silman James Press. And it's actually a book and a CD. Uh, both come together. Uh, this, the text is based on these animation notes that I did when I was uh, starting uh, to train some animators at our London studio, Pizzazz Pictures, in the 80s. And um, so I would do a lecture every week. You know, one would be on timing, one would be on spacing, some would be on acting, so on and so forth. Um, and I started to build up this kind of stack of handout notes uh, that I would generate every week. And those notes kind of got, you know, passed around and Xeroxed and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, uh, you got a copy of the notes? Yeah, I got a copy of the notes, you know, uh, over the last couple of decades. And... I've wanted to do it in book form for the longest time. I have been working on it for a long time. I have a very patient publisher named uh, Gwen Feldman, who actually waited for four years for me to finish this book. But frankly, I've been doing it for 25 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, it's, you know, all during my tenure at Disney's and doing lectures at colleges and things like that, I've added to it over the years too. Um, so what it is is, like the souped up version of the notes. It's the notes plus. Uh-huh. Uh, and the CD is selected pieces within the book that I've actually animated and done as animation movie oh files. God, that's awesome. Uh, so what it means is, you know, for example, if you want to see how to do an attitude walk, uh, I spell it out for you in uh-huh. the book. And, you know, you see there's a little icon there that says there's a movie file. You You click on the movie file and you can see what it actually looks like moving. Uh-huh. Um, and beyond that, every movie file has an X sheet down the side, all the in-between charts on the bottom, What you know, keys are circled, breakdowns are underlined. So not only can you see it move, you can actually analyze it frame by frame and see, oh, yeah, that's where the key drawing is. That's Mm -hmm. where the breakdown is. Here's how you get from there to there. That's ones, that's twos, you know, and really be able to understand in a very hands-on way 
how it actually works because you can see the result right in front of you. That's awesome. Uh, no mystery then, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, some of these animation books are like, yeah, just do this. And it's totally different from what the explanation is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I thought, you know, and it was one of the things that I was thinking was going to be kind of an extra in a few years. And I mentioned it to my publisher and she said, no, let's do it now. <laughs> so, uh, my hat's off to her. And, uh, and, uh, we got it together. Uh, had a great guy named uh, Scott Lowe do the uh, do all the um, uh, CD mastering for mm-hmm. me, um, and our own Kent Gordon here at Disney actually um, showed me how to do very high quality quick times, uh, so there's no image loss because mm-hmm. um, he's actually doing the same kind of thing uh, here for Disney's. So he's actually archiving classic scenes from the Animation Research Library. Right. Uh, and he would show me his latest quick time, like a Frank Thomas scene of Tramp walking around in a circle. And it's like, oh, we're not worthy. And, uh, and, I, and I was stunned at how nice the image quality was. So he kind of mapped out for me the best way that I could do it. And I actually could do it on my laptop at home, oh, okay. which was wonderful. I think this interview is going to come out after your book is released. But when is the release date for your book? The release date is july 15th probably by the time this podcast is out i already will have been at comic-con signing it at stuart ing um but yeah july 15th is actually the the release date awesome so by the time people hear this they can get the book indeed yeah great Boy, I think that, I think that covers the whole book. Is there anything else you want to say about it? I mean, you've wanted to do this for a very long time obviously and people have wanted this um yeah i think the only thing that i you know that I'd like to, to add is that, you know, there are a lot of already great books on animation in the marketplace, mm-hmm. you know, and I am not denigrating nor attempting to replace any of them, you know, because as much information as anyone can get is the best, really. Um, the thing that I would say maybe is a little different about mine is that it really starts from character. It's all about how do you make a convincing, interesting, compelling character. So the first half of the book is really about acting and theory. And the second part of the book is technique. You know, here's how you apply this technique to get a great performance as opposed to, you know, here's all the technique, now run with it. Um, Because I think... A lot of people approach animation these days from, you know, how fluidly it moves or or how well it's articulated, but not necessarily why it's moving that way, you know, and what you can do to actually say, these are the techniques I would use to say this character is slow and stupid or this character is quick and sharp, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, that's great because I really, we see a lot of reels, you know, and a lot of times it is technically good but there's no performance at all or no personality or no act it's, a lot of those the basics of what you watch animation for are not even there yeah. so that's an awesome approach I'm, I'm glad you're doing that uh, i hope it does some people some good <laughs> cool and so I, I heard this once and let me know if i'm remembering this right tony derosa said that when he was a child he saw you on tv as a child <laughs> is this was this related to animation uh okay yes it's correct <laughs> <laughs> Tony and I actually grew up on opposite sides of the same city in New Jersey, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. In high school, I went to Cherry Hill East and he went to Cherry Hill West. And um, my parents were very good at, at getting me publicity at an early age. From about 11 years old, they had me on local television programs. You know, there was a kid's show called The Gene London Show, and I was a frequent guest on there. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would draw, you know, Snoopy and the Red Baron to the record. Or, or <laughs> I would show my Super 8 animation and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was... Um, this is a kind of a bizarre story, and some people have actually seen this tape. Um, when I was uh, 15... Uh, they had me as a guest on the game show to tell the truth. I don't know if any of your listeners remember that show, right. but basically the the uh, format was one person was the real person and the other two were imposters who tried to convince the panel that they were actually, in this case, the real Eric Goldberg. Okay. Um, <laughs> now, 
I was pretty short when I was 15, so they got two imposters for me who were 10 and 12. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of wouldn't have been on the program at all, except through this bizarre quirk of fate. Um, I had been entering um, the Kodak Teenage Movie Awards, and I had won, you know, one of the prizes uh, that year. And so they put winners' names forward for various media things. So what happened was, to tell the truth, was going to have a gorilla trainer out there, you know. And for some reason, the the refrigeration back where the gorilla had to be on the plane was too cold and they couldn't bring him out. So they called me. (laughs) (laughs) Did they they have to just call you at home and say, yeah, they called me at home. My parents were out. I was at home watching cartoons. You know, it's like, holy moly. (laughs) They had us, they flew, they, 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 uh, we drove, we were in New Jersey. So we drove up to New York where the show was being taped. Uh, and it was being taped in the old Ed Sullivan theater, which is now home to the David Letterman show. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got to basically, um, you know, show my animation clips and and pretend, you know, that that uh, these other two imposters were me or whatever. Uh-huh. And, and uh, you know, two got it right, two didn't. Um, I spent a day briefing my imposters, right. you know, on cartoon lore and things that I liked. And, you know, uh-huh. so Peggy Cass during the, the show asks one of the questions. So do you know who did Woody Woodpecker? And the 10-year-old goes, yes, that was Walter Lance. You know, (laughs) yes, that's right. That's right. I have that here. That's Walter Lance. He's a good friend of mine. So afterwards, we're shaking hands and all that stuff. And Peggy Cass comes up to us and goes, I don't know who briefs you guys, but they do a great job. (laughs) (laughs) And I bit my tongue. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. The, you said you were showing animation. What was the animation when you were 15? Okay. I had a film in the Kodak Teenage Movie Awards called Up, Up, and Away, starring a character who I had created for flipbooks named Norman Nudnik. Um, and it was basically a Roadrunner-style cartoon of him trying to blow up a balloon every conceivable way. Uh, they showed a clip of that, and because we couldn't get the rights to the song Up, Up, and Away to actually run... They had me do the sound effects live on the mic. Uh, so I'm sitting there watching, and I used to do, I mean, before I hit puberty, I used to be able to do a slide whistle with my throat, but <laughs> I can't do that anymore. But I did all the sound effects live, mm-hmm. watching it on the monitor, and then I had to race out and join the other two imposters before the, the curtain right. came up. <laughs> well, Kitty Carlisle was sitting on the end of the panel, um, and she had a perfect view of down the hallway, and she could see me racing up to join the other two. <laughs> she, she, and you know what? She, she got me right. <laughs> yes. She guessed right. <laughs> so Norman N- Norman Nudnik? Is Nudnik. That? Nudnik. Nudnik is a, a Yiddish word meaning past. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And I've seen your flip books. Right. Uh, and you've been doing those since you were really young, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, I started when I was about six doing flip books. And that was the character basically for the most part. I think there was a Snoopy one at one point. Oh, I've done, I did all yeah. the, the, the cartoon characters that I loved. Right. You know, I right. mean, there's, I did Chuck Jones style flip books. Uh-huh. I did Tom and Jerry flip books. And, uh-huh. you know, I did all sorts of stuff. And probably the character that I used the most was my own character, this Norman Dunnick. He was, and you'll actually find him throughout the book, right? Uh, in uh, you know, because he's kind of your all-purpose, um, malleable classic animation character. He doesn't have a lot of detail on him, so he's great to move around and use for examples mm-hmm. uh, without having to worry too much about you know really specific anatomy and stuff like that right and i'm assuming that you've all your life been drawing but how did at six how did you know what animation was or how to do it and did someone show you or did you just pick it up or okay everything kind of comes full circle because when i was about four that's really when i started to get interested um and my brother at the time also drew and we were both fanatics for woody woodpecker and I have to credit my brother Elliot with teaching me how to draw Woody Woodpecker when I was four. Uh-huh. Um, and 
One reason I was compelled by Woody Woodpecker, aside from the fact that I really enjoyed the fact that he was insane, um, is that every week on the Woody Woodpecker show, Walter Lance would tell you how cartoons were made. You know, he'd spend, you know, one five-minute segment telling you about uh, exposure sheets or telling you about camera or telling you about how to read a soundtrack. And I, my head was exploding. I just thought that was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now if you buy the DVD sets, you can actually see those segments that I grew up watching when I was a kid in, you know, when I was four in 1959. So it's a kind of thing where uh, I was just absolutely hooked both by the compelling quality of cartoon animation and by how it was made. That, and there were two books in the library that I would take out every week. One was the Bob Thomas Art of Animation book, mm-hmm. uh, which had beautiful, beautiful stuff in it, and you know, basically centered around the making of Sleeping Beauty right. at the time. And the uh, John Hallis, The Technique of Film Animation book, John Hallis, Roger Manvell. And I used to get that one largely for the stills, you know, there are these great black and white stills in the center of the book of all these cartoons I had never seen, foreign cartoons, mm-hmm. uh, you know, UPA cartoons, all sorts of different things that I had never seen. And I just thought, wow, there's a whole world out there. So that's that's how I kind of got interested in it. How I knew to make a flip book, well, when I was six, some very bright spark marketed a toy called flip shows and they would take the frames of a, a huckleberry hound cartoon or a yogi bear cartoon or a you know a, a popeye cartoon and print them on perforated sheets you tear them apart put them together with a fastener and you had your own flip book mm-hmm. and i was hooked from that point no memo pad in the house was safe so <laughs> i you know that's when i started that's great that's great well being a kid with just tv that's all the animation you got to see, right? Except for going to the movies. You said that there were images in this book of other stuff. How did you find other stuff? Well, you know, it, you had to search for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, cartoons were pretty, you know, ubiquitous even on early TV. You know, the first thing they'd show in the morning after the test pattern and, and, and the farm report <laughs> was <laughs> cartoons. And usually they were ancient silent Paul Terry cartoons mm-hmm, <laughs> or mm-hmm. uh, Byworks Flip the Frog cartoons, anything they could get for yeah. like a buck and a half. Yeah. And they would show early in the morning and I would watch it. Um, but also uh, I grew up, before moving to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, grew up in Levittown, Pennsylvania. And we had what was called a rotor connected to our TV antenna, which meant you could actually, from the inside of the house, you could actually turn the antenna right. in different directions. So what it meant was I could pick up the New York channels and the Philadelphia channels. So if I watched Woody Woodpecker, you know, on Tuesday in New York, then I could watch it again on Thursday <laughs> in Philadelphia. <laughs> okay. And I could watch all the kitty shows that they had their running Warner's cartoons and, and all that kind of stuff. Of course, there was always the Mickey Mouse Club. There was always uh, the Disneyland program, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so the cartoons were pretty frequent, you know, and I got to know when they were on, like, uh, you know, memorizing a train schedule. Right, right. <laughs> <You know>? So <laughs> I, was, I was, you know, a geek even then. But the fact of the matter is, if you wanted to see something you hadn't seen, and this really came in more when I was in high school or and in college, you had to go find it out. You know, it was wonderful to go to college and be in New York because they had a CIFA there in New York at the time, and they would do screenings. Leonard Moulton had his classes at the New School, and even though I was going to Pratt Institute, I audited his class at the New School, which was basically him bringing in his 16-millimeter animation collection and running it uh and so i got my cartoon fix that way too Mm -hmm. uh and so it's a kind of thing where if you knew when the stuff and where the stuff was you could find it but you had to you had to 
hunt and peck for it. Yeah. And it wasn't as frequent and ubiquitous as it is now. I mean, heck, you can you can type in Felix the Cat on YouTube and you can probably find, you know, 50 entries. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty remarkable the availability of material now. Um but to a certain extent, I think one thing that today's generation doesn't have is the specialness of it. Mm-hmm. You know, back when I was a kid, Disney's would only release their movies in the cinema once every seven years. Uh, they would rotate them, you know, and bring them out for re-release every seven years. So there was always a new generation of kids to see them. But you knew that after that showing, you weren't going to see it again for another seven years. Right. Uh, and so that made it all the more special. You got to go see that, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, um, it's a kind of thing where, you know, I think it's marvelous that absolutely you can find anything these days and have immediate access to it. Um, and the print quality is usually superior, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's a wealth of information, you know. It's it's information you know that I had to do the hard way, <laughs> darn it. <laughs> so. Right. so at this age when you're fifteen, you have your short and you're going on these TV shows and all this stuff. Did you have an idea of where you would like to work? Yes and no. You know, I was always fascinated by Disney. I was always uh thinking of, of Disney in the back of my mind, but I liked a lot of other stuff too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because many of the people who I admired were still alive at the time, you kind of don't necessarily connect that the stuff that they're doing isn't as good as what they did in their peak years. But, okay, I'd like to work for Chuck Jones. Okay, and gee, maybe I can hook up with Tex Avery, you know, and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Um, you know, I was a Pink Panther fanatic because they were Freeling cartoons, you know, and that was a, that was a, an absolute possibility of being able to work at the Patty Freeling doing Pink Panther cartoons. Um, one thing that truly, truly, truly hooked me, though, was way back before PBS was called PBS. It was called NET, National Education Television, and it was in black and white. And they did a TV show called The Creative Eye. And one of them centered on one Richard Williams. And it showed him in his Soho Square studio um, animating movie titles for Casino Royale, What's New Pussycat, animating a commercial for Peter Evans' Eating House, which was like a a mock operetta. And... um, and doing uh, titles for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And I'm watching what this guy's doing. And I don't think I, I'm, I'm probably 12. It's probably 1967. And I'm watching this guy do this beautiful animation, what looks like watercolor on cell of this woman fondling a rose, which eventually wound up in the titles to Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And my jaw dropped and I just went, I gotta work for that guy. I have to work for this guy. My God, look what he's doing. And, you know, at the time when um, there were only three networks plus a few local channels, you know, in your in your particular area, uh, movies were very popular on the networks. They would have Sunday night at the movies, Monday night at the movies, et cetera, et cetera. And I would always, always, always ferret out the ones I knew had animated titles. I wouldn't watch the rest of the movie, just the titles. And so I would see Dick's titles for Casino Royale. I'd see Dick's titles for Funny Thing Happen on the Way to the Forum. That movie I did watch and still love it. Um, And likewise, you know, Frizz Freeling's titles for the Pink Panther. Um, And... I just thought they were fantastic. You know, it was it was beautiful looking animation done stylistically very differently uh than your standard Hollywood stuff. You know, even those first Pink Panther titles were graphically very very interesting compared yeah. to what the character and format became over the short cartoons. Right. And um when I first got to uh London to work for Dick Williams after Raggedy Ann and Andy. I'm kind of 
forging ahead That's here. Fine. I met uh, Ken Harris, mm-hmm. and he was very proud of the fact that he had animated, at that time, the first Pink Panther and the last Pink Panther. He animated the Panther in those first Freeling titles, and he animated the Panther in Dick's titles to Return of the Pink Panther. Right. Both sterling pieces of animation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just being able to meet these guys and connect with them and talk to them, I mean, that's that's gold. Yeah, you yeah. Know? I was going to ask you about them. So you were at Richard Williams' studio when Art Babbitt and Ken Harris were there? Yes. Um, first year was Art Babbitt. Second year was Ken Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, and were they working full-time, like animating as they were there? Yes, they yeah. were. Um, they were both working on The Cobbler and the Thief. Um, and they would come for about mm, a summertime or maybe half a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, my story about uh, Art Babbitt, and I had met him earlier, you know, I'll back up a little bit. My association with Richard Williams started on the film Raggedy Ann and Andy. Um, and a friend of mine was already working there, and he called me up and said that, uh, you know, we have... Uh, they're looking for people you should bring your stuff in so i brought my stuff in at the time no such thing as dvds or laptops or anything like that no i had to haul my super 8 projector (laughs) (laughs) my reels of film my flip books and i'm dropping my reels all over the floor (laughs) they're bouncing every which way where was this this was in new york okay Uh, and 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 trying to show this stuff to Dick. Fortunately, he saw enough potential despite <laughs> my my clutziness <laughs> that he took me on. And um, you know, and at the time, Art Babbitt was was there as well. Uh, actually, he was not there at that studio. He was working out in Hollywood. I mm-hmm. met him subsequently in in uh, a couple of months later when he came out to do kind of a truncated version of his classes mm-hmm. for the Raggedy Ann animators and. Um, in any event, you know, that was really my first professional association with him. And that started in 1975, mm-hmm. uh, and through 76. And, you know, I was Tisa David's, uh, assistant animator at the time. And I had known Tisa's work from her work with John Hubley and Faith Hubley on films like Eggs and Windy Day and Cockabooty and stuff like that. And, uh, you know... I always admired it. I'd never seen her do full animation, which mm-hmm. was interesting to me. Um, but she had a very, very unique approach. And, and you know, I became her, you know, her lead cleanup, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I learned a heck of a lot, you know. And also at the time, Dick entrusted me to do things that would just help up the production value. So if a character went into a hold, you know, and the hold just kind of looked like it stayed dead for too long, he would tell me to make it a moving hold where basically I would just do another key mm-hmm. and railroad tracks in between it so that the character was always alive, never went dead. This is for Raggedy Ann? Uh, this is on Raggedy okay. Ann and Andy. So, you know, I got a lot of great training on that film. Um, and then when that finished, eventually uh, Dick invited me to come to London to work at his London studio. I'd actually written to him and asked for a letter of recommendation because I was considering going out and working for Ralph Bakshi Mm -hmm. on Lord of the Rings. And, um, and Dick phoned me up and said, uh, well, come here, you know, I've got a commercial with a pot-bellied kangaroo, you know, (laughs) and, and you can, and you can work with, uh, you know, Art Babbitt, Ken Harris and all this. Then it's like, okay, I'm going to London. Wow. Which was scary as anything at the time. I mean, and you were like twenty-two. Yeah, twenty-two, yeah. and you know, I'd never done anything like that before. Um, but hey, life's an adventure, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I went. And um, the first time I got there, and this, you know, Art Babbitt was there that summer of seventy-seven, uh, and Dick introduces me and. Dailies. They had dailies every day down in the basement. And he said, well, this is Eric Goldberg, and he uh, he's new here, and he's looking for a flat. So if anybody knows of a place that he could go, you know, to, to find a flat, let him know. So Art Babbitt goes, are you looking for a place with a kitchen? Yes. 
Are you looking for a place with a toilet? Yes. Are you looking for a place with heat? Yes. Spoiled American. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as I'm working on this commercial with this pot-bellied kangaroo, I, you know, show Dick my first scene. He flips it. He says, "Lo, oh, that looks good. Look, you know, take it to, uh, take it to Art and, sh- and find out if there's anything that he thinks, you know, is wrong with it." I said. Okay, so I'm very nervously approaching. Oh, hi, Mr. Babbitt. Dick looked at this. He said it looked okay, but you should take a look at it and tell me if there's anything wrong with it. He picks it up, gives it one rudimentary flip. Well, several things. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he was right. <laughs> That's the darn thing. He was right. He showed me, in particular, you know, I'd actually made the kangaroo hopping with both legs going up and down at the same time and mm-hmm. he told me separate the legs on the down by four frames and it'll make him look like he's glumphing which worked great because he was supposed to be kind of a crude boisterous character and uh it was terrific advice mm-hmm. you know that i wouldn't have thought of otherwise had art not told me you know and there were also very great young animators working there at the time richard purdom was fabulous 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 he could draw and animate anything the first day i was there they ran two of his finished commercials and dailies one was with a character named cresta bear and he was kind of throwing his girl dance partner around to a, to a, a version of Chantilly Lace. Uh, beautiful, beautiful commercial. The animation and the timing was just stunning. Mm-hmm. All drawn on sale in grease pencil. Uh, and the other one was for Wrangler's Jeans called Wrangler's Rhino. And, and this rhino, the most beautifully drafted thing you have ever seen in your life, doing Fats Domino, well, the backup is being sung by three rhinolets. And I was mesmerized at the quality and the dimensionality of the work. Mm-hmm. Russell Hall, he was really a, quite an innovator. Now, Russell, you may know as the guy who went on to do Jessica Rabbit in Roger Rabbit. Okay. Um, and he's one of these guys who smokes these unfiltered cigarettes you know so every everything he said was usually punctuated with a drag (laughs) well you know and the um in any case he did things like he would just invent a different way to do a blink he did this series called cartoon baby for johnson's cotton buds in this country you would call them q-tips and the the voice was provided by Richard Briers, uh, who was a comic actor at the time in the 70s. And he would have the baby turn his head down in a blink, and the blink wouldn't be two eyes shut. It would be a graphic slash across his forehead for two frames, and it would look great. It would look great <laughs> in movement. Um, he also did a commercial that fooled many people into think it was, thinking it was live action about an oil rig uh, out in the, out in the middle of, of the North Sea for Shell Oil. It's called Shell Tempest, and he was emulating the painting style of Turner, and he was doing it with magic marker on cell. Ma- <laughs> I'm not kidding, magic marker on cell, and it looked like a moving oil painting. It was absolutely stunning. And we had geniuses there like Alan Foster who could help figure out how to do multiple exposures and overlapping dissolves and things like that to actually, you know, augment the illusion as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Russell had the, um, had the assignment to do some commercials for a liqueur in Germany called Schwarze Kata. Uh, and Ronald Searle had done the storyboards, which we had to lock in a safe every night. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, you could have just done it kind of, okay, it's kind of Searle-ish. Russell animated it, I kid you not, with dip pen and ink <laughs> on cell. You know, actually doing every drawing so it looked like full a Searle animation. drawing. Full animation, followed up by his assistant, Bella Bremner-Wood. And the the results just were stunning. They mm-hmm. looked like moving Searle. I mean, in the most convincing possible way. And he said to me one time, and I, it's something I've always thought of afterwards, you know, as far as what our jobs and commercials were, he would say, 
you know, it probably took Ronald Searle about 40 years to develop his style. And we have to do it in three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And you were there for four years? I was there from 77 to 81. And the whole time, did all those animators you mentioned, did they have to take their work, go show it to Dick, and then show it to Art or or to Ken? No, you know, a lot of times, you know, uh, we were relatively independent. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, Dick's technique was throw you in at the deep end. So when I first got off the plane and went in, uh, Jill Purdom, who was one of the producers there, uh, handed me a schedule. It said director Eric Goldberg, and I had three weeks to direct, lay out, and animate the darn thing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and it's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> but you either do it or you don't. So I did. Right. And it's kind of total filmmaking training. Mm-hmm. That's what's really great about it. You have a deadline. You have to know it's going to work. You have to know it's going to please the client. It has to look good to and pass it to dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now there was a lot of cross-pollinization. You'd ask people's advice and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, funny enough, I mean, I got to take Ken Harris to lunch every Tuesday, which was so much fun. But he wasn't very forthcoming about his technique uh, because at the time he was very self-effacing. He was he was 80 and, and it's the kind of thing where at 80 years old he could do 30 feet a week. Holy moly. And, <laughs> and, and it was good 30 feet. It mm-hmm. wasn't lousy. It was really good. It was classic Ken Harris right. stuff that he was doing on The Thief. And so I'd ask him and, and – uh, um, I said, Ken, how can you do this? And he'd go, oh, hell, I can't draw. Dick does all the poses for me. I don't know. And and he wouldn't <laughs> actually give me an answer. So I asked Dick, how does he do it? And Dick, fortunately, could explain it to me. Mm-hmm. He basically said, well, Ken was a master of the charts. You know, he knew exactly which keys to make and exactly where to push in position the breakdown drawing so that when you put in the rest of the in-betweens, you got automatic overlap, and my head exploded. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's how. You know, all of those Warner's guys could do 30 feet a week, yeah. and that's how they did it. They knew exactly where to place that breakdown drawing for maximum effectiveness. Sure, you can add the bells and whistles later, you know, extra overlap, extra, you know, stuff in between, but... Just by knowing where to place those three drawings, that was the guts of it, that and and how you charted it. Mm-hmm. And so I learned. I you know I I saw what Dick was talking about, and I started to utilize it myself. And it was a little tough because I was a straight ahead animator at the time that right. Dick you know got a hold of me. So I didn't really understand how to use poses and and breakdowns and charts to still make it look fluid. You know, when people start using that method, almost immediately their work becomes stiffer um, because they don't know how to, you know, break out of that kind of one drawing here, one drawing here, and one drawing in the middle. Um, But when you have that kind of ingrained in you, then you know how to make the drawings that still have movement inherent in them and give you the fluidity that you would want. and so it's the way I animate now. And right. I found out from Dick, that's the way Milt Call animated too. Hmm. He would do his storytelling drawings and he would do his breakdowns, you know, and the rest. And then he'd just go back over the rest of it and put in the bells and whistles. But his storytelling drawings were very, very strong. And, and his breakdowns were in just the right spot. Yeah. Did it and take he, you a long time to figure that out? It took me about a year. Mm-hmm. It took me about a year. I had tried versions of it when I was in college to not great result, um, but it took me about a year to really figure it out. At the time, Richard Purdom had done a commercial with a character named Busby. He was a bird on a telephone wire, and it was beautifully, beautifully animated. Uh, basically, he hears you know, his friend on the other end of the phone. You don't hear what the friend is saying, but you're just watching Busby laugh his guts out like he's telling him a funny joke funny story and that's basically it for 30 seconds mm-hmm. you know and 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 uh and so i had a i had a commercial with busby 
where he's phoning a girl for a date um, and he's trying to act cool like the Fonz. Um, and so I decided, well, I'm going to do a Dick Purdom impression. You know, I'm going to try and make this work the way he made it work. And so, and I also knew that because of the track, I wanted to hit very strong kind of cool poses. So mm-hmm. I did this kind of strong pose plus breakdown plus straight ahead combination on it. And we ran it in dailies and, and Dick Williams saw it and he said, oh, is that Dick Purdom? I said, no, it's me. Oh, looks like Dick Purdom. <laughs> I was so tickled. <laughs> That's great. And did you um, do a lot of analysis of like going through like moviola type things or flipping through drawings and analyzing charts? Absolutely, we did. I mean, Dick Williams was the master at that. Dick used to get these black and white copies of whatever Disney movie was playing at the time in London. Mm-hmm. I won't say how. <laughs> uh, in 16 millimeter, silent. And we would just run them frame by frame Mm -hmm. and analyze them uh and he also this is again well before anybody had access to any of this stuff you know he would have someone trace off a share con scene or he would trace it off himself and he would put it on the pegs and and watch the film and figure out what was on twos what was on ones what were the keys what were the breakdowns and recreate the charts and the X sheets for the scene that he had traced off. Uh I mean, that's stunning. I mean, it's stunning detective work to do to try and find out why it worked as well as it did. And, and Dick was terrific that way. He was always the most vocal one in any classes that anyone would hold. You know, Art Babbitt would be holding his classes and Dick would be asking all the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were con- and we were looking at live action too. We would, we would look at Charlie Chaplin, you know, frame by frame. You know, we would look at Buster Keaton. We'd look at all sorts of stuff. Actually, the first week I got to London, there was a Buster Keaton festival playing on Oxford Street every night with a live piano accompaniment and these beautiful prints and they would run two shorts and one feature every evening. And I was down there every night, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's just fantastic. Um, and the, um, so that whole spirit of investigating, finding out and, and, and really trying to understand it was really so fostered by Dick Mm -hmm. during that period in London. And it spread through all of London. There are many people who had opened their own studios who had passed initially through Dick's doors. And they had that kind of background as well. Um, And really, I think it came to fruition on Roger Rabbit because I think what happened there is that Dick had a worldwide crew, you know, from all over the place, not just London, and that same kind of spirit of investigation and quality got transferred to this worldwide crew, which then after Roger Rabbit um, spread back all around the world. Hmm. And I think what it means is that Dick really elevated the standards worldwide with that one movie. Wow. You know, and yeah. you, can't, you can't take that away from him. Yeah. So... Uh, it's funny because I get a question a lot about analyzing action and analyzing animation. And I think it's just from um, maybe people that don't have a lot of experience and they don't know what they're looking at. They don't know what to look for. Uh, what can we tell them? <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, you know, you can analyze for mechanics and you can analyze for performance mm-hmm. and you can analyze for both at the same time. Um, if you're talking mechanics, one of the great sources for all time has been the Edward Muybridge books. You know, there was a time at Richard Williams where I had to do a four-legged walk on an ox pulling a cart. <laughs> well, what do you know? And I went, <laughs> and I went straight to Muybridge, yeah. and there it was. And yeah. I could actually animate it based on, you know, the leg positions and hip positions, you know, that I could see in the photos in the Muybridge. As far as analyzing for per, performance, you know, I think you you basically just have to observe, you know, 
one of my great friends in London was Oscar Grillo, and he used to observe walks all the time. He loved watching people's walks, and you know, if 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 he saw a woman whose whose butt was sticking out and she was leaning forward, he'd call it the pushing the pram walk, as, <laughs> as if right. you know her hands are out and she's pushing a pram, but there wasn't a pram there. But that's how he would describe it. Well, that's good, though. I mean, to to actually categorize and, uh-huh. and know what you're seeing. Yeah, you know, it's important. Yeah, it's it's very and and so much can be expressed through a walk. You know, I think that's one of the things that a lot of animators don't do these days is actually crack the walk so that it actually says something about the character. Mm -hmm. First of all, it can say something about the character in general. Second of all, it can say something about the character specifically in that scene about how he's feeling. So, you know, in Hercules, Phil had a grouchy stomp you know, every time because he was generally a grouch. It didn't necessarily mean that he stomped all the time or was grouchy all the time, but his default walk was that kind of no-nonsense stomp. Yeah. Um, Laurence Olivier used to say when he was um, developing a character, the first thing he'd crack was the walk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's so much that you can express just with posture in a walk. Um, I'm telling you stuff that's in the book now. Uh-oh. But, uh, you know, one of my favorite examples of how walks can convey character is in Tex Avery's Little Rural Riding Hood. You've got the scene where the city wolf and the country wolf are entering the nightclub. <laughs> right. Okay? And the city wolf walks in and his body is in this beautiful concave curve with his nose sticking way up in the even air move, right? that's right and and the and the legs are dragging very smoothly behind it, behind him and he's hanging on to this flailing <laughs> compendium of arms and limbs the the country wolf whose movements basically say well he's an idiot yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and immediately you get those two characters mm-hmm. it isn't even the most sterling piece of animation in the world <laughs> You know, technically you could see improvements in there, but boy, does it read. And those types of things you hardly see. You know, Chuck Jones used to say, you know, that you could define Bugs and Daffy by their walks. You know, Bugs's walk was slow, relaxed, confident, and it shows that he's always in command. He's always in charge and he's not phased. And Daffy's is a kind of get the hell out of there sneak, you know? (laughs) And so, you know, you're defining who these characters are by just how they walk across a room. Mm -hmm. I mean, so much of this comes back to silent comedy and to pantomime and to vaudeville. Uh, And it's a kind of thing where as society has progressed i believe we've become much much more verbal and much less physical uh and so we don't tend to think of how to express ourselves physically in animation as easily as those guys could i mean those guys were all athletes dancers they could all do a buck and wing if they Mm -hmm. needed to Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know i guess ken harris was a big tennis fanatic so he could really play tennis Mm -hmm. very well um and so it's a kind of thing where physicality was just part and parcel of everybody's daily life then. Uh, now it seems kind of one step removed. I mean, for many people, the most physicality they might get is playing Wii. So <laughs> it's, it's not the same. Uh, and I'm no better. Let's put it that way. I mean, I'm Mr. Couch Potato. I think they coined the phrase after me, but it's uh, <laughs> so I absolutely am not casting any stones here. But you that's know. what makes analysis so much more important for us. Absolutely. <laughs> the ones that can't do those things. So. Okay. <laughs> Between your four years at Richard Williams, uh, I mean, after your four years at Richard Williams, you did you go do your own studio at that point? What happened was I took a leave of absence from Richard Williams in 81, and I was starting to make my own short film. Dick was very supportive, got me paper, and let me take my pencil sharpener home. <laughs> um, but as fate would have it, two things happened. 
One, I met my future wife, Susan, uh, on a trip back to New York. And two, Dick was starting up his L.A. studio to do a TV special based on Ziggy, the comic strip character. So about mm, six months into my sabbatical, he calls me and says, would you like to direct the animation on this, you know, uh, Ziggy film? I said, yeah, great. So, you know, I kind of dropped my own film. Uh, Susan and I hooked out. We, we drove out to California, you know, and we did uh, Ziggy. And it went on to win an Emmy for, you know, Best Animated Children's Special. And um, it was interesting because at the time, you know, we were like the radicals because we were animating it on sale in Marker. You know, and certain animator would call up looking for work saying, don't be stupid, man. Nobody draws on sale. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, we do. <laughs> and um, because the marker replicated that scratchy ink line that Tom Wilson had in his newspaper mm-hmm. comic strip. Um, and in any event, that finished up. We tried to do uh, some Ziggy vignettes. Uh, and Oscar Grillo called and said, do you want to come back to London and work for me? Um, so things were kind of not really happening to a great degree in California. So I said yes, and we moved back to London. I worked for Oscar for about a year, and two of my former partners from Richard Williams, or former, former colleagues, I should say, uh, Pam Dennis and Mario Cavalli, called me up and asked me if I would like to be the third partner in a new studio they were starting up called Pizzazz Pictures. Well, actually, I came up with the name. They didn't have a name for it. They said, what should we call it? And I said, how about Pizzazz Pictures? And at the time, no one in England had heard the term Pizzazz. Okay. <laughs> so we would get, you know, messengers ringing the doorbells. Hello, is this Pizza Pictures? Hello, is this Pizzazz Pictures? You know? <laughs> <laughs> the mail was was a constant surprise every day mm-hmm. to see how it was spelled, and then eventually London Act in advertising actually adopted the term, which was kind of so cool. So you brought pizzazz to England, I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, Is that just a purely American term? Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, um, and so uh, we did TV commercials. We the studio was open for six years. We did very well, and one of the reasons we did well is because Dick closed down his commercial studio to do Roger Rabbit. Mm-hmm. So all the other studios in London benefited from clients that Dick had previously had. You know, So he was doing well and we were doing well. So it was kind of a pretty cool period mm-hmm. there. And a lot of beautiful animation was created during that period. And so that's basically what I did for six years. And I came out as a guest to an animation festival here in L.A., uh, and I brought my commercials reels with me. And at the time, in the audience were Bill Matthews and Charlie Fink. Charlie Fink at the time was head of development, and Bill Matthews was head of training. Mm -hmm. And they liked the reel very much, and they asked me to borrow it, and they actually showed it at the studio. Um, And they thought it was you know, I heard for, at the time from Andreas that everybody really responded very well to it. In fact, recently he said, you ought to bring that stuff in again from London because yeah. people haven't seen it. Please, so. please. <laughs> <laughs> so I might do that. But then I went back to London and Charlie Fink started calling me and calling me and calling. So you want to jump ship yet? You want to jump ship? And I kept going, mm, no. But it was your ship. Yeah, it was my yeah. ship. Well... <laughs> It was a co-owned ship. Yeah. And eventually, I was racing to catch a train on a Friday night after a fairly you know, heavy day's work. And I got on the train, and my heart was going, <laughs> and I went, you know what? I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And, of course, people have, have snorted derisively at me. Ever since when I made the decision, I think I'm going to move to California to reduce my stress. Yeah, you're going to Disney? (laughs) (laughs) So it's the kind of thing where, but actually that first couple of years I was at Disney's, it did the trick because 
my first gig at Disney's was the Genie. Mm -hmm. And I just had a blast. You know, I had met John Musker through Susan. They were both at CalArts together. And back during the Ziggy days, uh, we had a... Susan, your wife. Yes. Yes. Uh, and we had a party at our place, and she invited all of her old CalArts friends. So it was John Musker and Daryl Van Sitters and Hindel Butoy and, you know, lots lots of, uh, you know, old CalArts chums. Uh, so I could meet them. You know, and from that point forward, you know, John Musker and I kind of had a mutual admiration society going. And um, I had heard from Charlie Fink that they were embarking on Aladdin. And that's kind of what's tipped the scales for me. Mm -hmm. I figured, okay, John, John and Ron are doing Aladdin. And animation is outrageously popular in the United States again. I'd better do this before... I miss the crest of a wave. So I extracted myself from my company mm -hmm. and uh, we moved back here. And I didn't even know what character I was going to have, you know. And this was while everybody was finishing uh, Rescuers Down Under and about to start on Beauty and the Beast. And so John and Ron gave me the early script and um, they had mentioned they were trying to get Robin Williams to do the genie. Mm -hmm. And I read the script, you know, and of course the genie leaps off the page. One of the things that John and Ron can do very, very well, which a lot, a lot of people can't, is aside from being great directors, they're also great writers. Mm -hmm. And so they can write in the voice of the character that they would like to actually do the role. Oh, like the actor? Yes. Mm -hmm. So they would write the dialogue for the genie and you could absolutely hear Robin Williams delivering it as you're reading it to yourself. So, of course, the genie leapt off the page. So they had me in. They said, so, uh, did you read the script? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, in the meantime, inside, I'm going, I hope they let me do the genie. I hope they let me do the genie. I hope they let me do the genie. And uh, John goes, well, um, we're, we're kind of thinking of you for the genie. I went, Yeah. Yeah, that could work. Uh, sure. You know. <laughs> and uh, I was absolutely thrilled to death. Uh, and I go outside and, and I'm um, absolutely tickled that, that this came to pass. And I locked myself out of my car. <laughs> and Charlene downstairs had to call security and have them come over with their professional lock picking equipment to help get me back in my car. So... <laughs> I can drive home. And, this, and then the following week, I actually started at the studio. Um, another thing that actually happened there uh, during that period, and one reason we had decided to relocate, you know, during August of 1990, is that Tom Cito was organizing the grand 100th birthday party for Grim Natwick at mm -hmm. the time which was, to my mind, the animation event to end all animation events. It had everybody there. I mean, it had all the people who had ever worked with or for Grimm who were still alive, and many of them were. Mm -hmm. In fact, one thing that, that Tom did is he got everybody up on the stage who had ever worked for Grimm for a group photograph, and there was like 70 people up there, mm -hmm. you know, and it was a wonderful mix of grand elder statesmen and women uh, in animation and young pups who were interested. And uh, I've never seen under one roof a confluence of so much animation talent in my life. If they had dropped a bomb on that building... There wouldn't be any animation industry right now. Mm. <laughs> and that mean, was in L.A.? That was in L.A. Mm -hmm. at the Sportsman's Lodge in, oh, okay. uh, in uh, Sherman Oaks, actually. Um, for those who don't know, the Sportsman's Lodge has long been a venue for animation-oriented events, mm -hmm. uh, you know. But uh, And they held it there. And Grim Natwick at 100 was so happy, so tickled. Um, and... That was something we just didn't want to miss, and we we're so glad that we could be here mm -hmm. during that period. Um, and so I just wanted to give that a mention and a little kind of tip of the hat to Tom for organizing it yeah. because uh, it 
it, no one has ever seen the likes of it since. That concludes part one of my interview with Eric Goldberg. I've received a couple voicemails since the last show through my Skype in number. I always like getting those and sharing them with you. So here's Ryan from Austin, Texas. Hi, Clay. My name is Ryan Duffin. I'm an animator at a game studio here in uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, I just wanted to uh, say how much I enjoy the podcast. I've been listening for about a year and a half, and it's, it's one of my favorites. I'm one of the many people who listens to it while animating. Uh, work. I got to say, your choice of guests has been excellent. I, I think I've learned something from every one of them, uh, especially the Ken Duncan and the James Baxter ones recently. Some of those were so uh, so much information. It was, I think, I think he actually warned us about that, that uh, so much information, you couldn't really just listen to it in the background anymore, but it was really, that's a good thing, real educational. Anyway, um, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing from your next guests and from more animators uh, outside the Disney track, but I understand uh, you plan on doing this for a long time and all, all in due time. I'm certainly not complaining about any of the guests you have had. Um, look forward to the next show. Uh, it was an inspiration for a podcast that me and a couple other game animators started uh, focusing more on like the art and animation of the games industry called Reanimators Podcast for uh, real-time animators. Uh, we're at www.reanimators.net. Uh, if you have time to check it out, I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, so I don't want to keep this too long, so don't change a thing, Clay. I think you're doing a really great job. I think it's awesome that you're donating uh, so much of your time and effort into doing this, and I think it's great that all your guests have done the same thing. Um, you know, a good animator is a, usually a really busy one, so this this means a lot that you're doing this. Um, I know that I, I seem to remember that some of the old interviews... Uh, there was like a part missing at the end, and I wonder if we're ever going to get those, or maybe I just missed them or something. Um, if not, then I'd love to hear them someday. Anyway, uh, thanks. Keep up the good work, and take care. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for the message and for letting us know about reanimators.net. I only just listened to your voicemail today, but I will be subscribing in iTunes so I can give it a listen. And I see from your site that you've already reached the 10th show, and that is an accomplishment in itself. Uh, you also asked about some unfinished interviews, and I get this question every once in a while. Uh, <laughs> the only interview that I have not completely published is with Nick Ranieri, and I think I'll be getting back to that one toward the end of this year and putting those out. The uh, Nick interviews do seem to be a favorite with a lot of people, and I owe it to everyone to get back to those. The only other guests that may seem unfinished are Glenn Keane, Ron and John, and Andreas Deja, but that's only because we talked about doing a second interview. Um, I haven't recorded any of those second meetings, but I still want to. I actually think it will be cool to revisit some of the guests every few years to see how things have changed. So I don't really mind the gap between the interviews, but uh, I do want to get back to all those guys. And here's a voicemail from Trevor from Ottawa, Ontario. Hey, Clay, this is uh, Trevor Hunter from uh, Ottawa, Ontario, uh, Canada. I was just listening to your, your podcast with Ken Duncan, and uh, I, I've listened to um, all your podcasts, and they're really amazing. I know you're, you're told this a lot, but... It is really appreciated, you know, hearing all this stuff from people that I love to watch on, like, DVD specials and, and extra features to hear them talk about animation, but actually having, like, uh, an hour to two hours of, of listening to them talk about what they do is amazing. Uh, love your work. Um, I'm an animator. Um, I've traveled to Halifax, to Ottawa, uh, doing some animation. I'm doing some storyboards now, and I really want to get into feature um, animation, and I hope... One day I can get there. Um, I'm just wondering um, some tips and, and ideas and how to get into feature animation. I know working hard is a big part of it, but um, maybe some. I saw some webinar on demo reels. So what's your take on a good way to get into feature animation? I would like to stick to um, classical stuff. I am going into Animation Mentor to do some 3D, and uh, I definitely want to try it out. I want to leave my options open, but I really want to look into 2D uh, feature quality animation. Um, if you have any studios or places to look, uh, just let me know. Uh, keep up the great work and good stuff. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Trevor. That is a very big question. Um, uh, since the number of studios doing hand-drawn animation has shrunk over the years, it's become much more competitive among artists to get into those studios. Uh, but the good news is that it is not impossible. So here's my take on it. The level of artistry at all the studios is getting raised year after year. So for someone to try to get in, 
they must be able to show that they can animate as well or better than any of the artists already there. So the short answer is to get as good as any of the pros and you'll have a chance. The hard part of the answer is how to do it. And um, there are basically three skills an animator needs to have, and they are great drawing talent, great acting, and great understanding of movement. Uh, notice how I didn't say okay acting or just good enough drawing. You have to be great, and you have to put that expectation on yourself. The hardest of these three to teach is actually the acting part. A person can learn to draw and learn to move something around because there are uh, real-world examples for them to follow, but acting is far more subjective, and I think it's the most important. Um, I haven't really said how to get good at these things, but I think the answers are pretty obvious. Uh, there, there are bookstores filled with drawing and acting and even animating books. So take classes, draw, act, and animate, and just keep doing those things until you're really good. Uh, <laughs> the last thing I'll say to this is something you've heard from almost every person I've interviewed, and uh, that is that most people don't start at the big studio doing feature animation. They work where they can find work and they never stop learning. And when they get a chance to take on a bigger challenge, they do it. And eventually they get good enough to get their dream job. So basically my advice is set your goal and never stop working until you get it. And um, when you're on this path to getting there, just keep a couple things in mind. And one is that there is no end to the path. The learning never stops. And the other thing is just, just remember that every animator started with zero experience. It's not something we're born with. And the people that succeed are the ones that just keep building their skills until they make it. So hopefully that's some good advice and uh, puts you in the right mindset. Uh, it's a long road and it's possible, but uh, it takes a lot of work and dedication. So good luck, Trevor, and um, thanks for the call. If you want to leave a voicemail for the show, the number is area code 916-AP-FUNNY. You can also send me a recording through my Skype account, which is Animation Podcast, all one word. Or you can go to animationpodcast.com and click on the voicemail link for all the info. And please do stop by the site and check out the show notes for all the interviews. There are links to relevant sites and books and DVDs on Amazon that we might discuss in the interviews. And uh, check out the comments and leave one of your own while you're there. And I do want to thank um, a couple of people that have been answering other people's questions on the site. It's actually very helpful to me. And I'm sure it's uh, informative to everybody. So in particular, uh, Mark Mayerson for explaining what it means to animate in feet. And if you're curious, you can check out his answer on the post for Ken Duncan Part 2. So I've mentioned on the last couple of shows how busy I've been at work, and I've been animating on Bolt, which comes out this Thanksgiving. And this month, we will be wrapping up animation. What that means for me and you as a listeners is that I should technically have more time to spend on the site and responding to emails. It'll take me a while to dig out of the email pile, but that's one of my goals as my life returns to a semi-normal state this year. So if you've been waiting to hear back from me, uh, it might happen. By the way, as listeners of the podcast, you are required to go see Bolt when it comes out this Thanksgiving. I also want to mention that I am excited to be a presenter at the ADAPT 2008 conference in Montreal, which happens September 22nd through the 26th this year. Um, if you're going to be there, drop me an email and let me know. I'd love to meet any listeners at the conference. Also, I've never been to Montreal, so if you've got any pointers on great places to eat, I'm open to that too. So if you're going to be at ADAPT 2008, hopefully I'll see you there. And of course, I want to thank our sponsor, AnimationMentor.com, the online animation school. I know I've mentioned it before, but sign up for their newsletter to learn about all the great programs they put on, like their free webinars and my upcoming podcast made exclusively for them. So go ahead and sign up at animationmentor.com. That's the end of show 29. We'll continue with Eric Goldberg on the next show. And as always, thanks for tuning in.